Hello and welcome to a Flatpak History of Sweden. My name is Chris. We're a podcast going through Swedish history chronologically, and right now we're up to episode 58 in the middle of the 1300s. And I'm Elsa. As always, let's get going straight away with our Swedish phrase of the week. This time the phrase is Sitta med svarte Peter, which literally translates to sit with Black Peter. I'm not even going to try and make sense of that. No, it's a really odd phrase. It might make a bit more sense if I tell you that Svarte Peter, Black Peter, is the Swedish name for a children's card game. I don't think I've ever seen that game or even heard of it in the UK or in the US, but in parts of continental Europe, it's quite common. I know it's called Schwarzer Peter in German, and in Polish it's just called Piotrus. And I've heard about it from friends from several other European countries. The aim of the game is to get rid of all your cards, and the loser is whoever is left with the Black Peter card at the end of the game. Okay, so I guess now I can guess at what the actual phrase means. Does it mean something like to lose or draw the short straw or something along those lines? Yeah, basically, it means to be the only loser, the only one losing out, or the only one blamed for a negative outcome. So you could say, for example, uh, there was free cake in the lunchroom at work, but my meeting ran over time, so when I got back, they had eaten it all, and I was the only one that didn't get any. So there I was, sitting with Svarte Peter, sitting with Black Peter. Gotcha. I should perhaps also mention that there is a bit of controversy around this children's card game, Svarte Peter, that the phrase originates in, because in some older version of the game, the Black Peter card is sometimes like an awful blackface caricature. I've never seen a version that looked like that in the time of my life, and I'm 30 years old. I remember in the Svarte Peter game that I had as a kid, that card, the Black Peter card, was a picture of a cat. Uh, but I know it used to sometimes be the case that it was a blackface caricature, and obviously that carries horrendous connotations. But it has nothing to do with the phrase as it is used today, I'd say, but it is something to be aware of. Yeah, so people actually still say it today. Yeah. You hear it in, like, normal day-to-day life. Yeah. Like, at work, like the example you said. Yeah. Okay, cool. I don't think I've heard of it, but I'll listen out for it now. But now it's time to get going with something that's happening in Sweden in the 1300s. Last time we left the country dealing with the fallout of the Black Death and another war with Novgorod. We saw, thanks to Bree from Pontifax, how the Novgorodian Archbishop Vasily helped rebuild Nurtoboy Castle after a lengthy siege there. The Novgorodians had got their castle back, but it was in pieces. Back in Sweden, Birgitta had left Sweden for Rome, picking possibly the worst year imaginable to make a long journey across Europe, as everyone was dying from the plague. But she made it there in one piece. Magnus also had time to sign off on a huge legal project, the Magnus Eriksson Law of the Realm. 
consolidating all laws across the country into one legal code. This was reinforced then with the town law, meaning that in principle, everyone was subject to the same laws across the country, even if in some cases this wasn't applicable for quite a while. Yeah, because remember, people could choose if they preferred the new laws or the old laws for quite a while when prosecuting someone. So that was good fun for them. But finally, at the end of the last episode, we introduced one of Magnus's favourites, his companion, Bengt Algotson. And speaking of Bengt, I don't think we actually mentioned that last name in the previous episode, Algotson. So his full name is Bengt Algotson. There we go. And Bengt definitely seems to be in favour. He was made governor of Skåne and duke of Finland, so both pretty fancy titles. As governor of Skåne, he might have been one of the first people in Sweden to hear news that Valdemar of Denmark had just welcomed another child to the family, this time a baby girl called Margareta. Margareta had an older brother, Christoffo, and an older sister called Ingeboy, because, of course, someone must always be called Ingeboy. Two older sisters and one older brother had also died young before her birth. As the youngest of the three surviving children to the Danish king, there weren't perhaps high hopes for this Margareta, apart from maybe a relatively high-profile marriage to a German count or Swedish duke. But, minor spoilers, remember her name for the future, because she will definitely not pass through history quietly, this Margareta. Absolutely, but much more on that in a few episodes' time. But heading back to Skåne and their new governor, Bengt started to get to work, and he had his eyes on a few changes. It seemed like Bengt had instructions from Magnus to try and regain some power from the nobility and the church after a few changes in their favour recently. He was also to institute a few changes to commerce and foreign relations, with the trading privileges that had been offered to the Hanseatic League scaled back a bit in the ports in Skorna. This shows you that Magnus isn't just sitting back whilst nobles try and take some of his royal power from him, but he's actively trying to claw some of this back. One way is to quite literally take things. When the Archbishop of Lund dies in 1355, Bengt confiscates many of the lavish properties of the archdiocese, whilst there's a bit of a gap before the new archbishop is installed. Of course, King Magnus already has a pretty terrible relationship with the church, having borrowed so much of their tithes and taxes recently to pay for wars and reconstruction after the Black Death, so... This certainly won't have helped him any further in this regard. But this isn't top of Magnus' concerns right now anyway. A big political change, albeit one that had been long planned, is about to happen that summer. This is because his son, Håkon, is now reaching the age where he can officially take over the throne of Norway. 
Because remember, back in 1350, the Norwegian nobles finally managed to get Magnus to sit down and commit to handing over the throne to Håkon when the prince comes of age. And so, sometime between the 8th and the 18th of August that year, Magnus formally leaves the Norwegian throne, and Håkon is crowned king of Norway, becoming Håkon VI. This should hopefully mean that the Norwegian nobles can now be satisfied and be happy with the fully-fledged independence of their kingdom, because previously they were worried that Magnus was spending too much time thinking about Swedish matters and not concentrating on Norway. This also means, though, that they're being a bit hypocritical, as remember they got quite angry when Magnus took control of the kingdom at age 15 and were saying, oh, he should wait until he's 20 to take control, but now they've just given the throne to Hawkon when he turned 15, so uh, yeah, it's a bit of a change in opinion. Well, I guess it goes to show that their main gripe really was the independence issue, not the age thing. I mean, they just wanted attention, like any younger brother, I suppose. And speaking of brothers, older brother Prince Eric, back in Sweden, is not really too happy about this development. His younger brother, Helkon, is now a king, whilst he has to wait around for their father to die before he gets any major responsibility in Sweden. After all, Magnus clearly trusts Duke Bingt with the important jobs. Uh, it is notable that Erik wasn't made governor of Skåne, for example. He wasn't even a part of the Swedish royal council. Yeah, so he's uh, getting a bit angry, and there's definitely a bit of a sibling rivalry developing now. And it won't take long for Eric to finally snap and try and do something about this difference in status between the three royals. But back to Norway quickly for a little fun fact. In 1355, a bit unclear if this is when he was still king, or just in his role as ruler over the North Sea Islands and other random bits of Norway, but Magnus sends a ship, or a number of ships, over to Greenland to inspect his settlements there. Apparently they hadn't been in touch for a while, as the sailors found a mix of villages and settlements there, some entirely Norse in their religious ways, and some entirely Christian. The main ship of this voyage supposedly continued making these journeys over the years until she finally sank in 1369 when she apparently wasn't even uh, bothered to be replaced. Ah. But now it's time to start one of the busiest years of the podcast so far as we turn the page and enter 1356. We'll start off down in Lübeck, where the Hanseatic League have gathered to, well, sort of officially become the Hanseatic League. Now, a lot of you are probably wondering, aren't they already the Hanseatic League already? And the answer to this is a bit of yes and a bit of no. It's quite like the answer to who was the first Swedish king or when did Sweden become a country? Yes, there are multiple ways to answer all those questions. The collection of trading cities with either majority German or high numbers of German traders have been trading, traveling and working together for decades now. We spent nearly half of episode 41 about Gotland talking about the background to the Hansa, so do give that a listen if you feel like you want a bit of a refresher to uh, 
who these traders and what this collective was. For example, it was back in 1134 when the Holy Roman Emperor gave trading privileges to Gotland, probably the first major interaction with Sweden, or what would become integrated into Sweden as Gotland was quite independent at this point. 1229 saw the merchant communities sign a trade agreement with the Prince of Smolensk when German traders from Riga, Visby, Lübeck, Munster and others all gathered to get favourable access to the prince's lands. So yeah, this has been going on for a while, and the most recent major treaty from a Swedish perspective was in 1280, when Lübeck and Visby signed a deal with Riga to ensure the protection of their traders going from the west of the Baltic all the way over to Novgorod. So basically, these traders have been around for a long time, and they've been a part of political and economic structures for a long time too, even creating their own institutions and funding things like the giant defensive walls of Visby or giant churches all by themselves. So these traders are gathering now, as they've got a bit of a trade problem with the city of Bruges. We won't go into this in too much detail, but it involves trade rights, the types of scales used to weigh goods, and also involves a bit of piracy on the seas. Yeah, actually, this had been a problem for quite a while, and back in 1347... Lots of these traders had been gathered and decided to organise themselves into three groups. The Wendish and Saxon towns in one group, so that's Holstein, Mecklenburg and Lübeck. Mainland German towns in a second group, so that's Dortmund and Cologne, for example. And Sweden, Gotland and Livonia, out in Latvia and the Baltic states, they're a third group, with Visby, Stockholm and Riga being the major towns here. These groups would soon be called the Drittel, a third in German. The towns making up their third would attend a team meeting called a Dritteltage, a thirds meeting, literally. They then chose representatives, councillors from the towns, to represent the thirds in the big meetings of the entire league, called a Hansetag, a Hansa meeting. Yeah, so these three groups are all representing each other, and the first of these meetings is in 1356 in Bruges. Here they formally recognise the decision back in 1347 to organise themselves in these three groups, and they agree additional rules and regulations for their towns, and how their councillors should conduct themselves both in meetings and in general day-to-day -day life. So this is a pretty big deal, making this all very formalised. Yes, with this formal structure in place and official representatives elected to represent each city and each drittel in the Hansa meeting, most people take this meeting as the official founding of the Hanseatic League. Yes, this informal grouping is now officially a thing, which is quite exciting, and it won't take long for the League to get embroiled in politics once more, albeit officially. Although, to be fair, the business with Bruges is quite a big political deal that's 
still going on in the background this time, but it's definitely outside the scope of this podcast to spend any more time on it. But if you are interested in the Hansa, please do read the monster book, A Companion to the Hanseatic League, edited by Donald J. Harreld. And for this time period specifically, the chapter The Golden Age of the Hanseatic League by Jürgen Sanofsky. This is all a really good summary of what's going on in the background, and the title kind of gives it away a bit to the golden age of the Hanseatic League. This is really interesting, and we will see soon how this kind of newfound agency and legitimization of the League will lead to them taking bigger and bolder political decisions, as well as economic ones. But you know what we haven't had for a while? A wedding! But have no fear, the wedding bells are ringing once again, and this time it is time for 17-year-old Prince Eric to get married. Uh, he's marrying Beatrix of Bavaria, which sounds like quite a fancy title, and rightly so, because her now-deceased father was the Holy Roman Emperor for nearly 20 years, from 1328 to 1347, when he died. Yeah, so this is really strong family lineage. She has six older brothers who are all dukes of various parts of Bavaria and holding various titles and offices in other parts of Germany too. So these are very powerful people for the prince to be related to. Probably not related to the wedding at all, but let's just pretend it is. In this year, King Magnus issues an ordinance for the tailors of Stockholm, making it the oldest official guild established in Sweden. We've had uh, previous guilds, there were some Frisian guilds back in the time of Sigtuna who had like an office in Sweden, but this is the first sort of originally Swedish guild. Yeah, they probably had a run on fancy clothes for the wedding. And maybe this was a condition of making everything in time. They said, give us a fancy title and make us a guild and we'll fix your clothes. I mean, none of that probably happened, but it's fun to imagine, like you said. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that didn't happen, but yeah, it's fun. However, the goodwill heading in the direction of the newlywed couple wasn't reciprocated by Eric. Instead of heading off to a lovely holiday spot like Lake Vernon for a honeymoon, he raises an army. What?! Yep, because uh, remember when we said that Eric was a bit annoyed that his younger brother was now king of Norway and their father was very much still in control of Sweden and was giving away a lot of fun positions, but to people like Duke Bengt and not him? Well, we should have said very annoyed. He was also upset that he hadn't been appointed to the council, like we said, so he essentially has no formal power whilst his brother and his dad keep everything for themselves or their friends. Oh, that's a lot of resentment right there. Exactly. And uh-oh, it was probably what Magna said when Bengt or another advisor came to tell him that they were about to witness the outbreak of a full-on civil war. Because Eric isn't just annoyed by himself, he's managed to rally some of the discontented nobility, because there's always discontented nobles around, uh, we've learned that by now for sure, and someone has to be upset about something. Presumably these upset nobles are disappointed with the favouritism shown to Banks, as we know this because they're starting to spread all sorts of rumours about the king and his favourite companion. Soon people are talking that the two are lovers, and Magnus gets his only real nickname, Magnus Smek. 
it's actually Bugitta that comes up with this not very nice nickname. She's keeping up with all the Swedish gossip through intensive letter writing from her residence back in Rome. So Magnus Smik, that's Magnus the Caresser in English, because he was supposedly busy caressing Bing. It's alluding to homosexuality. Yeah, so classic medieval smear there. And regardless of if the relationship was true or not, this is, yeah, propaganda 101. It probably didn't help that Bengt had very publicly and very recently denounced his wife. We're unsure if they actually got divorced, but they've essentially split up and his wife's relatives or ex-wife's relatives are very angry about this. And they're the powerful Tofter noble family. And one of these nobles is her half-brother, Karl of Tofter. He's an interesting chap for a number of reasons, and the first one is we know he was literate. He could read and write, which is pretty cool. Yeah, and he and I had something in common, actually, because he had studied in Paris. That's how he got his literacy. I would like to point out that I was literate by the time I studied in Paris, but uh, that's still something we have in common. Well, you weren't literate in French. No, uh, and to be honest, I wasn't very literate in French when I left Paris either. Well, but... you, you could say je voudrais un baguette avec jambon. Yeah, something like that. Let's not go into my uh, my studying in Paris. It's literally history, though. It is literally history in the sense that it happened in the past. Yeah, so it's part of this podcast. It's a Swede abroad studying to become literate in French. We'll wait to episode 4,852 <laughs> when we cover 2014 or whatever it was. Yeah, exactly. I wasn't quite contemporary with Karl of Tofta in <laughs> our studies in Paris. He was there a little bit before me. Yeah. Anyway, this Karl of Tofta was in turn related to the Swedish noble Eringisela Sunason. Um, some really tough name there. Is that how you say it? Eringisela? Eren Gisler. Eren Gisler, I think so. Yeah, Eren Gisler Sunason, who had the title of Earl of Orkney, or Jarl of Orkney. Because remember, Magnus still has control over these areas directly himself, the islands in the North Sea that used to belong to the Norwegian crown, but Magnus made sure he kept these when he abdicated the Norwegian throne. So Ering Gisler Sunason is one of these fellows who, just like good old Gleb, worked from home. Uh, it seemed like he never went to Orkney. He just wanted the title to uh, stroll around Sweden and show it off to a lot of the Swedish nobles who, whilst being nobility, didn't actually have any titles themselves. No, I mean, you can't all be Earl of Orkney. No, only one. <laughs> anyway, these are just two of the noblemen uh, involved in this rebellion they're teaming up with Erik to try and take the Swedish throne from his father, King Magnus. A lot of their public motivation is opposition to Duke Bingt and his exceptional privileges. The young prince shouldn't have to give up so much of his power by giving Bingt so many of these titles. It was insulting him as the future king as well as not spreading the power among the other nobles. It's all very dramatic. 
Judging by later events, it seems like the nobles wanting more power for themselves was probably the primary aim. Putting Eric on the throne was a means to an end. After all, Eric is young himself, so they presumably believed they could control him and at the same time claw back even more power from the crown and from Bingt and keep it for themselves. Apparently there's a brief diplomatic attempt to solve this problem in the summer, but this fails almost as soon as it begins. On the 17th of October, Eric gathers his troops and those of the nobles on his side, names himself king, and declares war on Duke Banked. I mean, by declaring yourself king, that's pretty much declaring war on the king himself. Declaring war on Duke Banked officially is just a bit of a technicality to make himself look a bit better in the eyes of the public and other nobles around Europe. On Eric's side, when things turn ugly in October, are a number of noblemen and also seven of the Swedish bishops. So there's a lot of powerful people behind him. Eric's army then begins marching towards the enemy and make a beeline for Bengt. They march from Kalmar down to Skåne and then on to Halland, aiming to capture Varberg Castle, Bengt's main defensive fortress there. There are even stories of Eric asking for foreign support. Calls to King Valdemar in Denmark appear to go unanswered, but there are reports of Duke Albert of Mecklenburg, who is married to Magnus's sister, so he's Eric's uncle, sending some support along with the Duke of Holstein doing the same. Magnus himself doesn't stand idly by whilst his son threatens to kill, capture, or at least depose his advisor and good friend Bingt. No, he gathers an army in Norway and races south to try and cut off Eric before he reaches Varberg. Unfortunately for the king, Eric has had a big head start and makes it to Varberg in time to capture the fortress before Magnus can arrive. Much to Bengt's relief, however, he manages to escape to Sweden and get back to Magnus, avoiding capture and death. When Magnus hears news of the castle's capture and of Bengt's escape, he decides not to fight his son on the battlefield with his army he's racing south with. Potentially, he thought he was going to lose, or perhaps he thought that considering Bengt was safe and sort of all that had really happened then was his son had taken a castle, maybe there was still hope for a diplomatic solution. And so they enter into a ceasefire in early January 1357. The terms of the ceasefire state that the struggle between father and son should be settled by a judge of arbitration. This process begins, but during the arbitration, several minor skirmishes still take place between Eric's men and the royal forces. Magnus appears to be quite successful, and his people even manage to capture Eric's mask. 
the court or the negotiations don't take too long to sort out the situation, though, and the sides gather to hear the judgment on the 28th of April, 1357. There are 21 points that are going to be addressed, but uh, don't worry, we'll just summarise the main ones. And the main one, in bold and underlined at the top of the page, is that Sweden is going to be divided and split into two parts. Eric will become king of Skorna, which also included Blekinge and Halland, plus become ruler of the Swedish counties of Östergötland and most of Småland, plus Finland. All of Finland. Wait, so Magnus doesn't really get to keep much at all, then? No, not really. Uh, Vestergötland, Dalarna, Uppland being the most important parts, perhaps, plus some other small areas. He also actually loses Bengt too, as that's the second most important part of the arbitration. Bengt Argotson and his brother, along with their most loyal advisors and commanders, will be exiled from Sweden. Wow, that's not good at all for uh, the king. Bengt also naturally loses his title, Duke of Finland and Governor of Skåne, but seeing as... Erik is now seen as the king of Skåne. He didn't really feel the need to take over this title. This makes Bengt the last duke of Finland for nearly 200 years. Minor spoilers. Now, whilst this is a negotiated solution, things don't stay negotiated for very long. This won't be a long-term peaceful ending to the civil war and the relationship with Magnus and his son will remain tense and sour. Eric briefly heads off to Finland in a sort of let's have a look at what I won kind of tour, but soon returns to Sweden. And effectively his first act is to start breaking (laughs) the terms of the peace treaty. We should probably just record a saying immediately starts breaking the peace treaty in a few different ways and just save that for future episodes as we've said that after almost every single peace treaty we've ever seen in the podcast so far. Someone will try and break it pretty soon after. Eric is one of these. Break it, he does. And he causes so much not specific mayhem that Magnus feels like he needs to enter into even more humiliating negotiations with his son. These negotiations end with Eric becoming the ruler of the counties Södermaland, Vestmaran, Dalarna, most of Uppland, and he gets Stockholm Castle as well, apart from a few notable royal estates that Magnus apparently liked a lot in Näke and at Svartsjö. So that's added to all of the stuff he had from the previous negotiation. So now he really is ruler of most of Sweden. Overall, though, historians have concluded that the real winners in this conflict are the nobility. Royal power is being stretched, ripped up and diluted so much that the country is literally in two pieces. One with an almost powerless king, and one with a young teenage king, most likely under the thumb of said nobility. It seems like Magnus, despite money problems, had been ticking along quite nicely recently. 
instituting some new laws and keeping the Novgorodians at bay, among other things. But all it really took was some arguing from his teenage son and some grumpy nobles for everything to fall apart very quickly once again. It definitely doesn't look too good right now, that's for sure. And these grumpy nobles also wanted to make sure that there weren't any grumpy peasants trying to bring back Magnus, who, after all, has been king for nearly 40 years at this point, so uh, maybe a few peasants seemed to like Magnus and maybe they wanted him back. So instead, the nobles and Eric, via Eric, of course, in his uh, title as now king, issue the Statute of Eric Magnusson, which was made together with the King's Council, and it was made for Stockholm, and it said that if anyone revolted, there would be harsh punishments. And by revolted, the definition for this was literally gathering together in a town square, for example, or speaking ill of the royal bailiff, the mayor, or any alderman or town councillors, and the punishment was quite specific that it was death. Wow, that is pretty harsh, especially considering these noblemen have just revolted themselves. It also states that anyone helping or hiding the perpetrators were to, quote, incur the vengeance of the king, and that the nobles and royals would confiscate all the possessions of those involved. This does look like it's a very strong hand against even very low levels of civil disobedience. There are to be no murmurings of protest against the king or his councillors and by extension the nobility, let alone a full-blown revolt. However, historian Peter Reinholdson has suggested that this law was mainly used for targeting pretenders to the throne, giving an excuse to execute them if they tried to raise popular support in towns, rather than being aimed against peasant revolts, as there's no evidence of any peasant revolts in Sweden at all in this whole time period. So he's suggesting actually the real target, the real reason why they made these laws was to stop Magnus coming mm. back, rather than just some peasants getting angry about bread or something. But the reason why there weren't any peasant revolts in Sweden at this time is maybe because the punishments for crimes in general were so harsh. One part of the Magnus Eriksson town law that was instituted in 1350 also mentions slandering the king and his council, and it said, If anyone should slander the king or the king's council, insulting their honour and reputation, and six men have witnessed this, he shall be put into the jail of the town and lose his head. I like the if six men have witnessed it part. If you're out in the street and shout that the king is a loser and his council are all losers, but only five people see you, then that's fine. It's only when the sixth person come in that it becomes a crime. Yeah, so if you're halfway through the sentence and then uh, sort of Yuan comes around the corner and you start seeing it, it's like, and I think the king is actually very great. <laughs> He's the best. <laughs> but yeah, so you've got to make sure you start counting people around you before you start slandering the king. But yes, in general, uh, this shows you that punishments were harsh in general at this time, uh, something we've uh, covered in previous episodes, so it perhaps isn't that much of a surprise that there weren't any peasant revolts in Sweden at this time, <laughs> even though it can be seen how someone like Eric could use these laws to try and take down any potential rivals to his new position. 
either way, Eric and his council of previously discontented nobles are busy consolidating their power with new laws such as this one, and Magnus has to be content with a very small area of Sweden to call his own. Everyone seems to take a bit of a deep breath and try to figure out what has actually happened and what their next step should be. That means that the calendar flips over to 1358 and events overseas once again take center stage. Going by our usual options, the location of the noose is uh, probably a 50-50 split between Novgorod and Denmark. Uh, this time it's Denmark. Ooh. During 1358, Valdemar, King Valdemar of Denmark, fights a war against a number of German dukes, including Albert of Mecklenburg, Magnus's brother-in-law and Eric's uncle. It seems like some battles are actually fought on Swedish soil, as Danish and German troops clash outside Helsingborg, down in Skorna. And Eric has actually declared war on Valdemar as part of this conflict, possibly out of loyalty to his uncle, or maybe just because he thought it would be wise to try and stab Denmark in the back whilst their attention was elsewhere, down in Germany. Either way, it's unknown if Swedish forces actually take any part in this conflict, either in general or specifically at the Battle of Helsingborg. What we do know is that Erik calls up the Leidung, that conscription of coastal forces and ships, to strengthen his military and bases them all in Helsingborg, but it doesn't seem like there is any actual fighting going on there that involves the Swedes. One quick side note, in this year, we see Håkon's first documented action as sole king of Norway, when in January 1358, he sends a letter outlining certain privileges for the capital city of Oslo. So that's good news for Norway and proof that whilst Helcon seems to be keeping a bit of a low profile right now, he is still busy kinging. Yes, he's just not getting involved in this uh, bit of drama down south, at least for now. But going back to Denmark, one reason Valdemar might have been interested in attacking Eric for during 1358 is because Magnus might have asked him to. We see during the New Year period of 1358 to 1359 that Magnus actually travels down to Denmark to personally speak to Valdemar and request his help in a war against his unruly son. He wants to take his kingdom back and he wants it all back. Valdemar agrees to help but on the condition that his price or his payment is the mighty fortress at Helsingborg, which is a very steep price for Magnus to pay. Unfortunately, Magnus doesn't really have any choice, and after all, as it stands, he doesn't even have Helsingborg Castle himself, so how bad can it be? Giving away something that isn't even his yet, it doesn't matter if it's uh, Eric's or Valdemar's, it's, for him it doesn't matter. Speaking of something that isn't even his, remember when Magnus borrowed all that money numerous times from the church? Well, the Pope remembers. We're not sure how the Pope communicates this move and who lets Magnus know, but in 1358, Magnus is excommunicated 
because he has failed to repay his debts. Oops. Um, probably made easier for the Pope by the fact that Magnus is very much now a shadow of his former self. Because just five years earlier, he was king of Norway, Skorna, and Sweden. And now he's just some sort of kind of king of some part of Sweden. Much easier to just brush away by the Pope. It's easier to excommunicate someone like this than a king of multiple countries. Yeah, but it is really bad news. In the Middle Ages, you did not want to be excommunicated. But luckily for Magnus, it doesn't seem to bother Valdemar. The Danish king quickly sends his forces to secure Blekinge and parts of Skåne for Magnus, who must have been delighted Valdemar quickly sends a letter to Magnus, or maybe a carrier pigeon, saying, There you go, can I have my castle now, please? Magnus replies something along the lines of, Castle? Did we mention a castle? Sorry, I can't hear you over the sound of the men refurbishing my new castle. Yeah, so, unsurprisingly, both Valdemar and Eric are annoyed at this development. Eric for losing Scorner to his father, and Valdemar for not getting the castle in payment. Valdemar probably wanted to try and take those territories for Denmark as punishment for Magnus ignoring their agreement, but instead decides to send his troops back to Denmark. That is because... Eric has raised his own army and marches on Skorna, not willing to just let his father waltz back in and take the pride of his possessions away from him. Seeing as Magnus himself has no army, really, this happens very quickly. Eric takes everything back from Magnus, and those locals who supported Valdemar and or Magnus are punished by Eric. That was very short-lived indeed. There is another settlement between Eric and his father, but the details are unknown. Uh, we have no idea what Minus committed to this time, but that is probably because the paper was just chucked away straight into the bin before the ink had even dried. But why was that? Well, for once, it isn't because someone has decided to just rip up the agreement and go against it the next day, but this time, the agreement has become null and void because Eric dies. Ooh, surprise! Yeah, very surprising, because if this story followed the general script, Magnus would have probably been imprisoned or exiled or killed in one last attempt to win back his kingdom. But no, Eric dies. Some sources say he died of an epileptic fit, or some say that he died from the plague. His wife also dies of the plague at the same time, so this might be the more likely explanation. His wife Beatrix had also sadly just given birth to a stillborn son, so the whole side of the family was having a pretty terrible time of it, to say the least, considering they've all died. Yeah, wow, that's very sad for them, but Magnus must be weirdly grateful for the Black Death at this point, if someone can be that callous, that is. Oh, I'm sure they could, judging by what we've uh, seen so far. But yes, as a result, it seems like Magnus quite literally pretty much walks back into Stockholm, becomes king of Skorna and all of Sweden again, just like that. 
There's no revolt, no noble rebellion, just Magnus becoming king and everyone pretending that the last few years didn't really happen, or at least that's what we're led to believe. The king does come to some sort of agreement with the nobility and the council, so perhaps Magnus agreed to abide by some of the constraints the council had put on his son whilst he was ruling, but we don't really have any record of what was actually agreed or said. Bengt himself, though, that former duke and royal favourite of the king, does seem to return to the royal court, though, after his exile is uh, cancelled. But we're unsure if he's given control of Skorner again. He definitely doesn't become Duke of Finland again. So, yeah, we now start to reach a period which historians call somewhat confused, as alliances will soon start shifting all over the place. But before we jump into all that, let's read out a quite fun quote from the Archbishop of Uppsala, who was getting quite angry in 1360 with some peasants over in Finland. Instead of fulfilling your duties and paying your tithes, you have, with a hard neck, promised to the guardians of your souls only losses and blows in reward for their fatherly care of you. All this you have done with a loud noise. (laughs) It sounds like he was angry with them for constantly complaining and protesting over the level of tithes and taxes, which, as we know from previous episodes, were much more of a negotiation process in this part of Swedish history than you might think that taxes can be. All of this you've done with a loud noise is a a great line, to be fair. I'm, I'm glad we read out that quote. And someone else who's intent on making a loud noise is, of course, Valdemar of Denmark. It's really important to point out at this stage that Valdemar, of course, became king thanks to that crazy James Bond-style assassination mission of a German count back in the early 1340s and had to literally put Denmark back together again piece by piece. There hadn't been a real Danish king for a decade by the time Valdemar came on the scene and the country was in the hands of various Holstein counts and noblemen. Valdemar's only goal from the very beginning was to retake all of Denmark, and that of course meant Skorna, Halland, and Blekinger too. And saying the names of all those three counties in once is a bit of a faff, and so back then, and also from now on, we'll probably just refer to Skorna, but we mean all three. And that isn't just because I'm from there and Skorna is the best, it's for simplicity's sake. Exactly. But yes, Valdemar has never forgotten the fact that Skåne and its neighbouring counties had been Danish for centuries before Magnus bought them a few decades previously, and he really wants them back. In May 1360, Valdemar gets the Danish nobility's approval for his plan to start the reconquest of Skåne. This attack is even more legitimate in their eyes because Magnus backtracking on his promise to give Helsingborg Castle to Valdemar that previous year and because Magnus is allied to Albrecht of Mecklenburg who is still at war with Denmark. Because, of course, this mini-war that uh, Sweden didn't really get involved in before is still going on in the background. 
Danish forces land in Swedish-held Skåne in mid-June and soon spread out all over the county. Among the commanders of Valdemar's men are his son Christopher and the Duke of Saxony. The Danes soon begin a siege of Helsingborg in the beginning of July. Valdemar's position looks good, but Helsingborg is the key to taking Skorna, and as a result, it's not easy to get a hold of. Magnus, despite being surprised by the attack, tries to gather an army around Lake Ringhuern, led by Jarl of Orkney, Eringisler Sunason. However, the army doesn't really seem to be a proper army, and is of course led by one of the main rebels who fought against Magnus just a few years before, so they might not be too loyal. In fact, this loyalty really comes into question, because the only thing the army seems to do is kill Magnus's old favourite Bengt Algotson in a big personal blow to the king. That's literally the opposite. Yeah, it's literally the opposite of killing the Danes and protecting Helsingborg kill the king's favourite nobleman instead. He must have been reading the instructions upside down <laughs> or something. <laughs> but this is just more evidence that Magnus's situation is pretty dire. Valdemar's hand is, of course, strengthened by the fact that we know that Magnus' financial situation is beyond terrible and has been for decades. As a result, he can't gather a large army, because he can't pay them anything, and because he can't pay, the Swedish nobility isn't very interested in fighting either. They'd happily give up Skelne if it meant a peaceful life at the end of the war for them. Skelne has never really been a big deal, as Magnus has either ruled it directly or given it to Bingt. Yeah, so the nobility don't really have much of a personal stake in Skelne. Negotiations have actually been ongoing since the outbreak of war, but now they end up being Magnus's only real option of stopping the war. He reluctantly hands Helsingboy over to Albert of Mecklenburg, who has secretly swapped sides <laughs> and is now siding with Valdemar. We did say this was going to be a bit messy with a lot of the alliances changing, and this is perhaps the first obvious example. Magnus then heads north, and according to a new agreement, four judges of arbitration, seems to be the uh, way of doing things these days, yep. from each side will sit down and arrange a treaty between Sweden and Denmark. After the negotiations, which are characterised by lots of deceit and foul play as always, Helsingborg finally gets handed over to Valdemar. Happy that he finally gets a hand on the really tough nut to crack that is Helsingborg, Valdemar simply sets about continuing his conquest of Skåne, Blekinge and southern Halland, which is very sneaky of him. Most of these areas surrender without a fight, with only the commander of Lindholmen Fortress showing a willingness to resist the Danish king, but even he eventually does give up after having been paid a rather handsome sum of money. Yeah, a huge chunk of money gets given to this commander to give over the fortress. And this really shows you that Magnus had no hope at all of winning on the battlefield. Nobody really is willing to fight for him, and those who think about it just get paid off. I mean, if I were them, the, the commander of this castle, I would probably like to get paid by someone, and seeing as my own king has no money, <laughs> it makes sense to at least get paid by someone, even if it's the Danes. Yeah, such is the harsh reality of war. We can imagine that Valdemar took at least a day to sit back, 
look at the map and realize what he had accomplished. Maybe he even had a big mission accomplished banner hung from Helsingborg Castle. Yeah, I imagine so. Because, yeah, he had done it. Denmark had been returned to its rightful borders. Victory! And what had seemed like an impossible task just two decades before, by the end of 1360, Valdemar has retaken all the territories which were once under the Danish flag. This is amazing. He's such a successful figure, really, when you think about it. He's probably more successful than any Swedish monarch we've seen thus far, at least in an extended period. We've had, you know, people have won individual battles or created the kingdom, so to speak. But he's, he's done it over 20 years. And therefore, there was probably a bit of a dramatic gulp in the Swedish palace when they realised Valdemar wasn't going to stop there. Rumours quickly spread throughout Scandinavia that Valdemar wanted the Swedish islands of Erland and Gotland too. Magnus quickly, in response to these rumours and more uh, concrete plans as they appear, proclaims a general state of war and in early 1361 sends a message to Gotland. The Danes are coming. Prepare yourself. On that note, it is time to end here. With any luck, the next episode will be a bit of a special episode focusing on this battle for the Swedish islands in the Baltic Sea. You'll have to wait and see. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Lots of family drama once more. Thank you, as always, for all your downloads and listens and for spreading the word wherever you are listening. We've had some recent downloads from all over the world, in Iraq, the United States minor outlying islands. Uh, We had to Google which islands they were. So thank you, listener, uh, on the United States minor outlying islands. Uh, We've also had listeners uh, from India, Colombia, Thailand, Japan, and dozens or so other places so wherever you're listening to us uh thank you so much yeah that's on top of pretty much every american state canadian uh, province and every country in europe so yeah thank you and thank you everyone for listening as we said and thank you for rating us on spotify too which you can now do if you have it on the app we've had over 25 star ratings on spotify so thank you for all of those uh, people if you're one of those and we've also put up a new family tree for this episode on the website which we haven't done for a long time yeah i think it's been nearly 10 episodes since i did the last one so uh, check that out check out our social media channels if you feel like it just search for flatpack sweden on facebook and twitter we could email us on flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com or go to our website to see that lovely new family tree www.aflatpackhistoryofsweden.com Yeah, and with that said, until next time it's goodbye from us. Hey, doll.